0: Shalom Mishboka. Welcome to this week's Kadima podcast. And this week I want to share about overcoming opposition. You know, but before we begin, I want to share that preparedness, operational procedures, and pre-planning will remove a significant portion of your opposition and trials before they even begin. Our foundational scriptures from Nehemiah, but we're going to focus on chapter four. As a matter of fact, Nehemiah is one of my favorite. Uh, passages. But as we read in chapter 2... And this is the post-exilic period. This is the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple. This is the Ezra uh, with Nehemiah. This is Zechariah. These are all in the same time frame. This is after 70 years of diaspora and a restoration back to Israel and the rebuilding of the nation. And this parallels where we're at today because we, too, live in a post-exilic time period where Israel was restored on May Fourteenth, 1948. We're in the restoration period, first the nation, then Jerusalem was restored. And soon the temple itself will be restored or the Mishkan or whatever is going to be built, and we'll see the return of Yeshua the Messiah to establish the Davidic kingdom, the Messianic reign. But this is important to us uh, because as we see back in this original post-exilic period that parallels the post-exilic period today, there was great opposition. But as we read in chapter two, we see that Nehemiah knew there would be opposition, so, we must have our eyes open. We must be aware of our surroundings, the atmosphere, and the conditions of where we're at when we move forward to have a realistic understanding of what we face. Nehemiah asked for sponsor letters from the king to show the governors of the provinces he was traveling through that he would give uh, or receive safe passage and make it through uh, without any issues. When Nehemiah actually arrives in Jerusalem, He scouts the city in the middle of the night under the cloak of darkness so the locals wouldn't know what he was up to. So a major way to overcome opposition is to have the intel and the knowledge of what you're getting into, to be aware of your area and know the background. If you're in business, you've got to understand the market, you've got to do the study, you've got to look at your demographics, you've got to see the area, the competition. Listen, if you're in ministry, you've got to spirit map where you're at. Every area has a specific calling, a specific Uh, spirit that rests upon it. Well, I've talked about this before. We've done this extensively for over 20 years here in our area. This is the birthplace of America, where, matter of fact, the property I'm sitting on right now was the actual plantation of John Rolfe, who is the actual person who married Pocahontas, not John Smith. And so we're in a very historical area, and we've spent a lot of time going back through the threads of history to find out the foundations of those settlers, the prayers that they said, and realize that the DNA of America is the one new man, that prayer that they prayed twice a day at Jamestown for over 90 years. So it's incumbent upon you to do your homework, find out where you're at, what your purposes are, and what God's destiny is for you in the area where you're at. You have the spirit map to, to understand where you came from that you may know where you are going. Let's start in Nehemiah 4, starting in verse 1. Now, this is after Nehemiah has arrived. And, and the first part of this, too, is he inquired in chapter 1. So there were some visitors from Jerusalem to the capital city. As you know, he was the king's cupbearer of now Persia. But he inquires, how are my relatives? How are things in Jerusalem? So he has compassion. He has an understanding. He's seeking to know how things are going. And with great boldness, he comes before the king who grants him letters, grants him the ability to go back and do the work he's about to do. And so when he gets there in Nehemiah chapter 4, starting at verse 1, but when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he was furious, greatly enraged. He ridiculed the Judeans. Before his kinsmen in the army of Shamran, he said, what are these pathetic Judeans doing? Are they going to rebuild anything they want? Are they going to sacrifice? Are they going to finish today? Are they going to recover useful stones from the piles of rubble, burned rubble at that? Toviah the Ammoni was with him, and he said, whatever they're building, why, if even if a fox went up it, he'd knock their stone wall down. Verse 4, Nehemiah said, our God, listen, we are being treated with contempt. Turn back their jeers on their own heads, give them over to be plundered in a land of exile. Don't cover their guilt, don't let their sin be wiped out from before you, because they have insulted the builders to their face. So we kept building the wall, which was soon joined together and completed to half its height all the way around because the people worked with a will. So we see great unity here before I move on. They're working with passion, with a zeal. They know that they are doing God's work. They understand that this is scriptural. And this is very important because I have photographs of this actual wall that they rebuilt. When you come with us to Jerusalem, you'll see when we come out of the exit to the city of David, right here is the wall very close to the southwestern wall today, uh, of the Temple Mount, and you see the actual foundation of Nehemiah's wall. It's just very profound to touch this thread of history that we're reading about right now. So the people are working with the will, verse 7, but when Sanballat, Toviah, the Arabs, and the Ammonim, and the Ashodim heard that the repairs on the walls of Jerusalem were going forward, and the breaks were being filled in, they became very angry. Verse 8, all of them together plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem and thus throw us into confusion. However, we prayed to our God and because of them organized a watch against them day and night. Judah was saying the strength of the people who carry loads away is starting to fail and there's so much rubble that we can't build the wall. Verse 11, our enemies were saying they won't know or see anything until we've already infiltrated them and begun killing them and stopping the work. I want to pause right here because what is this? This is nothing more than a terrorist attack. It's the same threats that we face today. Some of will infiltrate. People are coming across our southern borders that's wide open and unguarded with, with no protection. And so that's a threat today as it was 3,000 years ago. Verse 12, even the Judeans living near them came and must have said to us 10 times, from every place you must come back to us. Verse 13, so in the lower parts of the space behind the wall, I stationed men according to their families and their swords, spears, and bows. After inspecting them, I stood up and addressed the nobles, the leaders, and the rest of the people. Don't be afraid of them. Remember Adonai, who is great and fearful, and fight for your brothers, sons, and daughters, wives, and homes. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that the plot was known to us and God had foiled their plans, we all returned to the wall, everyone to his work. From then on, half of my men would do the work, and half of them held the spears, shields, bows, and armors, while the leader stood guard behind the entire house of Judah." As they continued building the wall, those who carried loads held their loads with one hand and carried a weapon in the other. Again, I want to pause here before I move on to verse 18. Remember, this is prophetically revealed in Jeremiah. Jeremiah said that our time in captivity would be 70 years. Daniel was reading Jeremiah in Persia and immediately began praying and repenting. It's a very powerful prayer. He understood the 70 years were up. It was time for our return. So the work of Ezra, the work of Nehemiah, the work of Zechariah, it's all prophetically in the Word of God. And yet, when they go about the business of restoration, there's great difficulties, there's trials, there's issues, they've got to fight. They're actually armed and prepared to defend themselves, their wives, their families, against any outside threat or an attack. Just as we initially took the promised land, we had to fight for it. As we returned here, we had to fight for it. As soon as we declared our independence in May 14, 1948, every Arab nation surrounding us went to war and tried to annihilate us and we won. So what does this reveal? Well, as we're talking about overcoming opposition, what it reveals is any great thing you're going to do, it's going to be a fight. And the greater the prize, the greater the fight, the greater the sacrifice you're going to have to put in to get to the goal. So be prepared to fight, to put on the armor of God. Be prepared to do everything it's going to take to fulfill your destiny and your mission, not just in the kingdom of God, even in the business realm. Even if you're a godly person and you've got a godly business, the enemy, those around you, you're going to have your own sambalots and Tovias. They're not going to let you just go about unaccosted and do whatever you want to do. It's going to come, but knowledge is power. Knowing it's coming allows you to posture yourself and be ready, be prepared, be armed up and ready to move forward. Verse 18 of Nehemiah 4, as for the construction workers, each one had a sword sheathed aside. This is how they built. The man to sound the alarm and the shofar stayed with me. I said to the nobles, the leaders and the rest of the people, this is a great work and it is is spread out. We are separated on the wall, one afar from the other. But wherever you are, when you hear the sound of the shofar, come to that place to us. Our God will fight for us. So we kept doing the work. Half of them held spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. Also at that time, I told the people, that everyone with a servant stay the night within Yerushalayim so that at night they can be a guard for us, even as they work during the day. Verse 23, I, my kinsmen, my servants, my bodyguards never took off our clothes and everyone who went to get water took his weapon. This is a profound revelation of restoration and gives us great insight. One of the greatest tests of leadership is how you will handle opposition. The question isn't, will I have opposition? It's how are you going to handle it? Every leader will face opposition, from Moshe to King David, from Jeremiah to Yeshua. Nehemiah faced the usual tactics of the opposition. Let's walk through a few of these. First, ridicule. Nehemiah 4, verses 1 and 2. When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he's furious, greatly enraged. He ridiculed the Judeans before his kinsmen and the army of Shamran, He said, what are these pathetic Judeans doing? Are they going to rebuild anything they want? Are they going to sacrifice? Are they going to finish the day? Are they, are they going to recover useful stones from the piles of rubble, burned uh, rubble at that? This is the foundation of jealousy. The first manifestation of jealousy is ridicule. It's knocking people down. Every person who is successful will face jealousy. Jealousy is personal insecurity, and it breeds jealous strife. If you're successful in ministry, people will be... And there's a flip side to this. You have to be very cautious that you yourself don't compare yourself to other ministries and become jealous. There's a great danger here. We're told not to do this in the Brehadashah. You focus on what God has called you to do, but know the minute you start receiving success, the minute souls are coming into the kingdom, the minute your business propers, you're going to have the Sanvalots and the Tobias come out enraged, furious, and jealous. And why is that? Because they've lived their whole lives there. They've done absolutely nothing. Then people come in, they're movers, they're shakers. Nehemiah starts getting some work done, and they're furious. So to understand this, the first manifestation of jealousy (laughs) is ridicule. People are going to make fun of you. I I want you to pause for a second. And again, and I've shared this many, many times, I, I am an amateur investigator of revival. I've read all four books of God's generals, Robert Liarden. They're phenomenal books. I like to look back through history and see how revival started, who God used, and how they failed, how they fell short. And and I I want to share with you that there's one common denominator in every significant move of God in the last thousand years. Everyone, Every person who God used, everyone who felt the Spirit of God and began moving in signs and wonders... Uh, Jack Kemp Cook, uh, Seymour, all these guys, uh, Catherine Coleman, every one of them were thrown out of their denominations, were thrown out of their organizations under great ridicule. It's ironic that the last movement of God, the last sect that experienced revival, and and this is a danger. Every place that gets revival, it eventually becomes entrenched into a denomination. It quits moving. When the fire begins flowing, everyone thinks, aha, we've reached it. But you haven't reached it. The kingdom of God is forever expanding. It's forever in revival. So once it begins, uh, you can't let the fires fan out. You can't let the embers fade. So every one of these people that have been used by God, phenomenally. Dowie, I just could keep going on for 20 minutes on this. By those who had last had the move of God, they're the first ones to stand up and begin ridiculing and persecuting. Why is that? Jealousy. Because God is moving over here, and they think God should be moving with them. So you have to prepare for that and be ready. All right, let's move on. Next, resistance. In Nehemiah 4, verses 7 through 8. But when Sanballat, Toviah, the Arabs, the Ammonim, and the Ashdodim heard that the repairs of the walls of Jerusalem were going forward and the breaks were being filled in, they became very angry. Are you seeing a common thread through all these things? All of them together plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem, and thus throw us into confusion. People loathe change. This is the next manifestation right after jealousy. People want to change, but they can't let go of the past or the familiar. And being in a Hampton Roads area, I think I've shared this before, we call this the crab theology. And this is true. If you put five crabs in a bucket, one crab will get wise and start climbing out of that bucket. And do you know that the other crabs will pull that other crab that's trying to get out back down into the bucket? This is a center focus of change and people that loathe change. If you're doing something out of the ordinary, people will do everything in their power to resist and to bring you down. Isaiah 43, verses 18 and 19, stop dwelling on past events or brooding over times gone by. I'm doing something new. It's springing up. Can't you see it? I'm making a road in the desert, rivers in the wasteland. So God's forever doing something new. You know, every great business. Uh, endeavor over the last hundred years, when somebody came up with the idea, immediately they were ridiculed. No one would ever eat this. No one would ever buy this. What use could this ever be? And yet, this is how we've got the titans of industry in America today, because they stood their ground and they resisted those who pressed against them, the resistance and the jealousies. People not intimate with God or rebellious, they don't hear his voice. The northern kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity because they wouldn't hear God or obey. They wouldn't change. 2 Kings 18 verses 11 through 12. The king of Asher carried Israel away captive to Asher and settled them in Halach and Havor on the Gozan River in the cities of the Medes. This happened because they did not heed the voice of Adonai, their God, but violated his covenant. Everything that Moses, the servant of Adonai, had ordered them to do, it would neither hear it nor do it. So there's a grave danger in not changing. There's a grave danger in not keeping up with the kingdom of God, which is forever expanding. Psalms 55, verse 19, "'God will hear and humble them, yes, he who has sat on his throne from the start, for they never change and they don't fear God.'" So we have to be adaptable. We have to be willing to change. And as things maneuver, let me tell you, we're nowhere near where we are at today as a ministry where we started 20 years ago. This has come with a lot of wisdom, with a lot of growing pains as God has expanded our tent pegs. And every step we take it one step at a time, but we've radically overhauled and radically redesigned what we do as a ministry at least seven times in the last 20 years. And I pray in the next 20 years, It'll be 20 times because we want to move when the cloud moves. When the cloud stops, we want to stop. We want the presence of God to lead us. And that has to be your heart desire yourself, even if it requires change. Even if a God says, you're going down this path, you're excited. He says, stop, go here. You have to be willing to stop and say, your word, O Lord, I'm going to do whatever it is that you want. People tend to fear change because they become complacent. They don't want things to change. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, "...for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline, to be about the things of the kingdom and do what he's telling us to do. Don't fear the unknown. Don't fear change." Revelation 3, verses 15 and 16, the, the Lord says, "...I know what you are doing. You are neither cold nor hot. How I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth." complacency is the killer of businesses. Complacency is the killer of ministries. How many titans of ministries no longer exist today, but were were fire-driven, spirit-fueled ministries 100 years ago, 150 years ago. Now they're dead, they're dying, and have empty churches around the world. We cannot become complacent. You can't plateau and say, we're there. We have to overcome these blocks. We have to overcome these hurdles to keep moving forward in the kingdom of God. People won't change because they're adverse to change, because it's contrary to self-will. Change places to focus upon God vice-self. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, Moreover, understand this, in the akhirat hayyamim, in that time and season to come, will be trying times. People will be self-loving, money-loving, proud, arrogant, insulting, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, uncontrolled, brutal, hateful of good, traitorous, headstrong, swollen with conceit, loving pleasure rather than God, as they retain the outer form of religion, but deny its power, stay away from these people." This sounds like it's taken from a script of our society and moral standards today. It's as if this was written last week. This is exactly where we're at, not only in America, but around the world. Without change, there's no personal growth and no presence of God. Next, what they had to overcome, what Nehemiah had to overcome in Nehemiah chapter 4 was rumor, gossip, and slander. Verses 11 and 12 of Nehemiah 4, our enemies were saying they won't know or see anything until we have already infiltrated them and begun killing them and stopping the work. This is combined with fear. Even the Judeans living near them came and said, you must have said to us 10 times from every place, you must come back to us. Even some of the locals now were catching into the slander, the gossip, and we're focusing upon the why and getting under the spirit of fear. You have to overcome that. You have to denounce. They later in the next chapter call out the Nehemiah and said, come, up to the plane of Ono, let's reason, let's talk about this. It was a distraction. I love that Nehemiah saw right through and says, now i got too much work to do. They were trying many different probes to get him to stop the work. When you begin fulfilling your destiny, what God has called you to do, there will be numerous probes and it never ends. It doesn't stop at the five-year point, the 10-year point. The fi- it just gets more and more complex and, and harder and harder to view. So you have to keep your guard up. You have to be armed all the time on the constant lookout for the next threat and who's trying to subvert or who's being used by Hasatan to subvert and stop what you're doing. Nehemiah, this man of God, modeled the right response to all three of these challenges To the first one, verses four and five, uh, he relied on God. He said, Listen, we're being treated with contempt. Turn back their jeers in their own heads. Give them over to be plundered in the land of exile. Don't cover their guilt. Don't let their sin be wiped out from before you because they've insulted the builders to their face and they knew they were doing the work of God. Most importantly, number two, they didn't stop the work. Verse 6 of Nehemiah 4, So we kept building the wall, which was soon joined together and completed to half its height all the way around because the people worked with a will. Don't stop the work. I think I've probably shared this a hundred times in the last 10 years. This is a sobering statistic. 90% of people will stop when they're within 10% of the goal. Do not relent. Fight the good fight. Run the good race. Keep pressing in. Number 3, he reinforced the weak points in verse 13 of Nehemiah 4. So in the lower parts of the space behind the wall, I stationed men according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. So listen, he he wasn't amiss. He armed them. He prepared for battle, spiritual and physical battle. He wasn't apathetic. He wasn't complacent. He was aware of the real-time threats. You know. Look at the congregations, look at the churches, look at the Messianic realm, look at the regular traditional synagogues across this country in the last 15 years. Look how many attacks, look how many mass shootings, look how many things have attacked us. We have to pull our head out of the sand and understand that we are under a full bench press attack by the enemy. This isn't just praying and a spiritual awareness, but it's also ourselves able to defend and protect ourselves from these attacks as they're trying to infiltrate and destroy us. And shut us down, both from terrorists and those who hate us, and you know what, in this day and age, even by governments that are seeking to shut us down to keep us from worshiping together as one as you, O Lord, have commanded. Number four, he reassured the people in verse 14. After inspecting them, I stood up and addressed the nobles, the leaders, and the rest of the people. He said, don't be afraid of them. Remember, Adonai, who is great and fearful, and fight for your brothers, sons, daughters, wives, and homes. He's giving them a word of encouragement. He's saying, listen, we're doing the work of God. You're doing a great job. Don't be afraid. Keep pressing in. He refused to quit. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that the plot was known to us, God had foiled their plans. We all returned to the wall, everyone to his work. Don't give up. Number six renewed the people's strength continually, verses 19 through 23 of Nehemiah 4. He said to the nobles, the leaders, the rest of the people, this is a great work. It is spread out. We're separated on the wall, one far from the other. But wherever you are, when you hear the sound of the shofar, come to that place to us. Our God will fight for us. So we kept doing the work half- held spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. Also at that time, I told the people, let everything with the servants stay the night within Yerushalayim so that at night they can uh, be a guard for us, even as they work during the day. I, my kinsmen, my servants, my bodyguards never took off our clothes and everyone who went to get water took his weapon. He had a plan. See, this this wasn't a knee-jerk reaction. This has been thought through. There's been prayer. There's wisdom involved here. And this is how we have to approach those oppositions, the world blocks that come to us. And they will come. You just have to be prepared to go over it, around it, or through it. But one way or the other, we need to keep going. Nehemiah 4 concerns problems uh, from without. Chapter 5 deals problems from within, disputes about food, properties, and taxes. So see, you get this existential threat outside, but then as soon as you get that work, now you've got problems inside. You've got angst, you've got anxiety, you've got pr- people don't want to pay taxes. Some of the Jews were taking some of our other people for debt as slaves, as servants. Persistence is the ultimate gauge of our leadership. The secret is to outlast the critics. Nehemiah taught us this lesson by staying committed to his ultimate calling. He was consistent, he was disciplined, and he didn't get off track. He didn't lose focus. He knew how to complete the task. And I want to look at four characteristics Uh, As we come to a close today, for those who complete a task, Nehemiah 6, verses 15 through 16, "...so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days." When all our enemies heard about it and the surrounding nations became afraid, our enemies' self-esteem fell severely because they realized that this work had been accomplished by our God. We see a radical shift in the atmosphere and the attitudes of them around them. By their persistence, by their ability to complete the task, by staying true to what God had called them to do, in 52 days they're done. Now, all the enemies, all those who were going to infiltrate and destroy them and all those who were ridiculing them and bringing gossip and slander, and threatened them, all of a sudden now, they're afraid. And now they realize that this is something bigger afoot than just man, but God is with them. He's behind them. Commitment comes before anything else in a leader's life. Nehemiah had it, and he was able to draw it out of others. The people finished that wall in 52 days, despite many adversities, many oppositions that they had to overcome. Their great accomplishment so thrilled Nehemiah that he wrote, When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid. They lost their self confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of the Lord our God. Leaders who complete a task possess four characteristics. Number one, they've got a compelling purpose, they make a great commitment to a great cause. This goes hand in hand with what he talked about uh, last year in our Kadima talks about having a vision and a mission. What's the purpose of your congregation? The opposition we face internally in many congregations is that they're split in 10 different congregations. More than one vision is die vision, and you'll see it all throughout the congregation. You've got to pick a focus. What's the heart behind the congregation? Where are you going? And stick to the vision. From the very beginning, God raised us up here at CZS as a one new man congregation. Now, we may have strayed occasionally here to there on the side of the path, but we've never lost the focus that God wants to release this one new man, Jew and Gentile, one Messiah, that the days of iniquity would come to an end and God's glory be revealed on all the earth. We ourselves here of a congregation have a compelling Purpose, And we're beginning to see the first fruits of this even now after striving over 20 years to do so. There's got to be a compelling purpose. If you cast a vision and it's from God, people will come into and join you with you in that vision. Leaders who complete a task also have a clear perspective. They don't let fear cloud their view of the future. You know where you're going. They're able to see through the obstacles and overcome the opposition because they know what God has told them to do. Next, there has to be continual prayer, verse 3. They pray about everything and gain God's favor. He prayed to God before he went to Jerusalem. He's praying to God the entire time they're there. They ask God on a habitual basis for their help and for direction of where to go and how to do it. I can't overemphasize enough prayer and your steadfast devotion to the word of God and seeking his presence every day. I've shared this before. A friend of mine, Coach Mack, the head of Promise Keepers, shared with me a number of years ago when I had some time with him. I spent an entire afternoon alone with him, just he and I. Can you imagine? I, I shared about this in an earlier Kadima talk. It was one of the greatest blessings of my life. I was a sponge. I just let him talk. He'd occasionally ask me questions. He still, to this day, gets up every day at 4 a.m. and spends two to three hours in prayer in the throne room before the Lord God Almighty. That and everyone wants a you know promise keepers ministry. How to everybody, every person in ministry wants to make a global impact. It's just the heart of who we are. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, but to get to that place to do the destiny God has called you to do, it requires great sacrifice. It it requires great discipline, and it requires great continuity. Seven days a week. Coach Mack gets up at 4 a.m. and prays and intercedes in the throne room before the Most High God. Coach told me, he says, I don't want yesterday's manna. I want fresh manna from heaven every day. If you want to be a successful leader, if you want your ministry to succeed, if you want your business to succeed, you have to clearly be hearing from the voice of the Lord from the throne room. And the only way to get a compelling purpose and a clear perspective is to hear it from the voice of God himself, panim hapanim, from the face to face, from mouth to mouth, And you only get that through continual prayer and intercession and being in the presence of the Lord. And lastly, there has to be a courageous persistence. They move ahead despite the odds. You have to be tenacious. Look, you know, David was a warrior in his day. And yes, he couldn't build the temple because there was too much blood on his hands, but he brought about the truly first unified nation of Israel. And he had a courageous persistence. He never relented. David did everything he did at 110%. We have to have that same persistence. This is going to sound odd for a second. And 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 hear me out for a second. In the last twenty years, I'm shocked to see the inroads in the success that the LGBTQ community has had in America. Twenty five years ago, if someone on a TV show come out and that person was gay, the show was canceled. But why are we where we're at today? Why do we have such a broad based move of this? I'm going to be honest with you, because they are persistent. This is a big, humongous failure in the body of Messiah. We're fervent prayers on Sunday morning. We're fervent prayer intercessors on Shabbat. But then we delve into six days of the week and we forget about God. A sobering statistic, the average believer who's actually a true believer that's following the commandments of God spends about 90 seconds a day in prayer, 90 seconds. That is not courageous persistence. And until we stop being apathetic and complacent, until we get on fire, until we start interceding in the throne room, we won't see the world around us change and the atmosphere shift, and you won't overcome your oppositions. We face one of the greatest oppositions we've seen in humankind in the last 2,000 years. Our world is tearing apart. The the very moral fabric is being destroyed. People are lamenting. People are crying. Oh, what are we going to do? Well, what we need to do is get in the game, and we need to overcome these things. The greater the opposition, the greater the sacrifice, the greater the prize, the greater is required upon us to stand in the gap and see a difference. The word says we are super conquerors, we are overcomers. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in the book of Romans. But we have to follow along and let me Nehemiah be the example, and we must have a compelling purpose, a clear perspective, be in continual prayer and intercession. And be courageous and persistent, be bold, don't relent. Kadima, keep going forward and you will succeed and see the blessings of the Lord God most high and all that you're doing will succeed and come to pass for the kingdom of God. Mishpochah, I pray the Lord will bless you and keep you and these words ring true to you today. Hashem Yeshua HaMashiach, amen and amen.